Our Old Testament reading this morning is taken from Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, the entire chapter. Hear the word of God. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainly. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. And then turning to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 9 through 13. Again, the word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. How do you define what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Uh, We all want to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that is, we want to follow him, and therefore it might be helpful for us if we could accurately define what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, One of my favorite definitions comes from a very young girl. I think it was Rico Tice who was talking to this young girl uh, precisely about what it meant to her to be a disciple of Jesus. And this girl said, I'm for what Jesus is for, and I'm against what Jesus is against. That is a fantastic definition. right? Out of the mouth of babes, I am for what Jesus is for, And I am against what Jesus is against. As I say, that's a fantastic definition. After all, our goal is not to simply become better versions of ourselves. Our goal in following Jesus is that we would represent him to the world and that we would become like him. We are pursuing the glory of God by trying to live for Jesus by coming to live like Jesus. Now, having said that, that needs just a little bit of nuancing. Uh, There was a big movement in the United States and Canada 
um, few years back called the What Would Jesus Do movement. And people had bracelets they would have, you know, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? And I want to say there's, there's a good aspect to that. I'm pretty excited when young people are saying, I want my life to be morally informed by what Jesus would do. But the reason why the nuancing is necessary is the movement often ignored the unique person and the unique vocation of Jesus. I mean, after all, all I have to do is look at what Jesus actually did. Uh, among some of the things Jesus did is, you know, he walked on water, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, and he died for the sins of the world. Uh, it'd probably be inappropriate, inappropriate for me to ask you, how are you doing? Right? But thankfully, Jesus doesn't call us to imitate him in all those unique aspects of his person and his vocation. Yet he does call us to embrace his mission in this world. But by aligning ourselves with his own heart toward people and his own goals for the kingdom of God. And so we ought to take inventory from time to time by asking ourselves, am I for what Jesus is for, and am I against what Jesus is against? As we will discover in this morning's passage, it turns out that Jesus has never been about promoting a respectable religion that isolated ourselves from notorious sinners, so that we could receive the praise of our fellow Pharisees. Jesus is not about promoting a respectable religion which looks down upon the outcasts of this world. Jesus both desires and embodies mercy, the mercy which is necessary to save a wretch like me. The practical question is obvious. Is this the way that you and I Look at the outcasts of this world? Or do we isolate ourselves from them and look down upon them, seeking the praise of modern day Pharisees? Am I for what Jesus is for? Am I against what Jesus is against? We're going to look at this morning's passage under five main headings. First, a most unlikely convert. Second, a radical conversion. Third, a misguided question. Fourth, a sharp rebuke. And fifth, an enduring lesson. Let me give those to you again in case you're taking notes. Actually, even if you're not, hearing these again will help you know where we're going this morning. First, a most unlikely convert. Second, a radical conversion. Third, a misguided question. Fourth, a sharp rebuke. And fifth, an enduring lesson. We begin in verse 9 with a most unlikely convert. Please look at verse 9 with me. Matthew writes, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. Now in my whole life, and I love talking to young people, but in my whole life I have never heard a young person tell me, when I grow up, I want to be a tax collector. Um, it turns out that tax collectors are not 
people that are held up as heroes pretty much in any culture at all. But if we come to this passage imagining that Matthew was something like a civil servant working for the IRS today, we're going to miss the whole point of what is going on. Uh, Matthew was not a civil servant. Matthew was involved in a type of work that made him an outcast and utterly despised by his culture. Let me give you an analogy. Suppose you were a Jewish person living in Poland before World War II, and then the Germans invade your country, and then a fellow Jew, some man that used to pray with at synagogue, um, goes and works for the Nazis as a tax collector. How would you think about that man? Now, now I want to grant that the Nazis became far, far worse in Germany than the Romans did with their legions in Judea. But they were almost equally despised. And in fact, uh, the way the Romans set up their tax system actually led to part of the problem of why people were so despised, why you would assume at the outset that a tax collector was by definition corrupt. It's actually designed right into the system. Matthew would have been um, collecting taxes in one of two ways. He would have either been collecting taxes on the fish. Uh, yeah, the Romans taxed the fish. The fish belonged to the Romans. You pulled fish out of the Sea of Galilee, you had to pay a tax on it. Matthew would have either been taxing the fish as the fishermen brought them to shore, or more likely he would have been working uh, along the main route there, the, the way of the sea, the road, and taxing trade as the goods moved from uh, the region that was under the control of Herod Antipas uh, to that of Herod Philip and the other way around. Well, that doesn't sound so aggravated in itself, but if we stop and think about it, we'll realize that the Romans have a problem in collecting taxes in all their provinces. After all, people don't really like being occupied. So if they simply hire local Jewish people and they give them civil service type jobs, you know, you get paid this, do the right thing, all those Jewish workers are going to be inclined to cut their fellow Jews a break. And therefore, Rome's going to get a lot less tax revenues and they think they're owed by the province of Judea. Um, furthermore, if they decide that's not going to work, they're going to send people from Rome to go there to administer the system. They would have had to send a ver veritable army there uh, to administer it, to protect everything. And, and even those people they sent, they could have very easily chosen to steal tax money from Rome. And once again, Rome wouldn't get the tax dollars that they thought they were due. So they came up with an ingenious system, a system that worked well for Rome, did not work so well for the working people in Galilee or Jerusalem. It's called tax farming. And tax farming works like this. The Romans would put out to bid the entire region of Galilee. And private citizens, uh, usually a pool of investors, not just one, they'd raise money and they'd buy the right to tax that district. And they'd buy it for the total amount that Rome wanted for their tax money from Galilee for however long that contract was for. You could say a year, but many times the tax contracts were longer than that. So Rome would get exactly all the money they wanted, and they'd have no administrative burden. They transferred all the financial risk and all the burden of collecting taxes to the private sector. 
that worked really well for Rome. But why in the world would investors get involved with buying uh, uh, the, the franchise to tax the region? And the answer is, every shekel they collected above what they paid Rome was profit. Therefore, they were incentivized not to simply follow the laws, but to squeeze the people to get every tax shekel they could. And then they would hire people like Matthew. Uh, later on, actually it's in the Gospel of Luke, we'll come to Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. He may have actually been someone that had invested in this tax farming scheme. But Matthew, it seems, is lower down the pole. He was a hired worker for these tax farmers, but he was paid on commission. That is, the more money he brought in, the more money he put in his own pocket. You see, the whole system is designed in a way that's good for Rome, but it's designed to squeeze the people for as much tax money as they possibly could get. Do you now grasp how despised Matthew and his fellow tax collectors would be to their fellow Jews? They were collecting taxes for the empire that was occupying the promised land, and they were doing so in a way that was inherently corrupt, designed to collect more tax dollars than were due, because that's how they would make money. For a pious Jew, a tax collector like Matthew would be the last person in the world that they could imagine Jesus calling to be one, being one of his disciples. Yet when this holy man of God sees Matthew sitting in the tax collector booth, Jesus says to him, come, follow me. And astonishingly, that is precisely what Matthew does. Now, you probably picked up that Matthew's writing his own story here. I mean, he's the author of this gospel. Uh, and so Matthew narrates this conversion story simply. And he arose and followed him. Of course, that is the heart of becoming a, a convert. You, you take Jesus at his word, you trust him, and you follow him. Now you're a Christian. And of course, he became a disciple and ultimately an apostle who even wrote the gospel that bears his name. Um, this sounds so simple, we can miss how radical a conversion Matthew experienced. Uh, as Grant Osborne points out, Matthew almost certainly gave up more to follow Jesus than any of the other disciples did. I want you to think about that. Well, why is that so? Matthew almost certainly gave up more to follow Jesus than any of the other disciples did. Well, you remember that when Jesus starts out, he's calling fishermen. He calls Peter, he calls James, he calls John. And when Peter follows Jesus, he keeps his boat. Actually, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, we're going with you. Uh, James and John, when they leave to follow Jesus, they leave their father with the boats, with servants. The business is still going on. But when Matthew gets up and follows Jesus, he leaves everything behind. By the way, Luke, writing for a Gentile audience, explains that fact. He, he adds it. He says, leaving everything behind, he rose and followed Jesus. And in Matthew's case, there's no going back. I mean, for one thing, even if he wanted to, even if he apostatized, the tax collectors aren't going to take him back after he walks off the job. 
Matthew was burning the bridge behind him. You know, um, it's very unlikely you're ever going to have to do something quite that dramatic. But if you come to Christ as a teenager or older, there are aspects of your life that you're going to have to burn bridges over, including sometimes relationships, where you say, in order to follow Jesus, I'm just totally letting go of this, and there is no turning back. That is why Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels tells us to count the cost before we choose to follow him. Now, Jesus isn't trying to discourage us by telling us to count the cost. He wants us to count the cost so we make that commitment up front so it doesn't deter us as we follow him throughout our lives. That's what Matthew did. He counted the cost and he joyfully paid it. Now, if you're wrestling with that very thing this morning, please listen carefully to the other side of the equation. Yes, Jesus does tell us to count the cost of following him, so you ought to do that very thing to make your commitments clear up front. But, beloved, Jesus also declares, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So yes, by all means, count the cost of following Jesus. But beloved, also please realize that no Christian at the end of their life, we're talking about true Christians, people that are following Jesus throughout their life, Not a single one of them ever looks back and says, wow, that wasn't worth it. And that's just about this life. And then the age to come, those who follow Jesus, and only those who follow Jesus, inherit everything. Uh, This this point about the, the goodness of following Jesus is going to be made in the following verses. Lord willing, we'll look at that uh, two weeks from now. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples will come to Jesus and ask, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? For now we should note in passing that following Jesus for all of its trials is characterized by joy rather than solemnity or sorrow, by feasting rather than fasting. As R.T. France puts it, To follow Jesus is to find life on a new level. And isn't that what Jesus himself tells us? I have come that you may have life and that you might have it with abundance. Well, Matthew gets this. And so he leaves everything behind, but he also throws a party. He throws a massive feast to tell his closest friends about the new life that he has received in Christ He throws a party so that his friends can meet Jesus. He wants them to meet Jesus for themselves. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, let's start with a little detail that might be helpful. If if you're only thinking that the Pharisees are calling the people Jesus is meeting with tax collectors and sinners, you could miss this. But we need to pay attention and notice that it's Matthew who is calling them tax collectors and sinners. This is not merely the perspective of the Pharisees. Now, since Matthew knows very well that every single one of us is a sinner, what in the world is he getting at by describing this group of people sitting with Jesus as sinners in some distinctive way? Let me give you a type of analogy. Uh, Suppose you have a daughter that's off at college, and she's going to bring a young man home, her boyfriend, to meet you. Well, I have bad news for you. She's going to bring home a sinner. There are no other possibilities, right? Every human being she's going to meet on campus is a fellow sinner. But think about what difference it would make if it's a sinner saved by grace who's pursuing righteousness in Christ, empowered and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, or she brings home a bank robber, a drug dealer, someone who makes their living by producing pornography. See, it makes a difference what sort of sinner they are to you, doesn't it? You don't just throw them all in the same category. Now, the specific sins were different that Matthew's dealing with here, but the category is the same. Jesus is dining with people, breaking bread, sharing table fellowship with people, but the Pharisees did not want their young sons to grow up to be like or their daughters to grow up and marry. And unless you think about it, neither would you. We have to figure out what the Pharisees are missing here, because they're missing a great deal. As I say, this is how things appeared, at least on the surface. And this is why the Pharisees were just appalled that a holy man of God like Jesus would be breaking bread with these notorious sinners But beloved, appearances can be deceiving. Um, I do need to say, maybe this isn't an issue anymore, but it's an issue from my youth, so I'm going to bring it up. If it doesn't impact anything you've heard, that's fine. But I don't want you to miss this. This passage and others like it have been wildly abused in Christian circles as a justification for Christians hanging out with notorious sinners to fellowship with them in their sin. That is, it's justified Christians living in worldly ways as though you have to live in a worldly way in order to reach worldly people. But beloved, that's fundamentally wrong. Step back for a moment and notice what the Pharisees are missing. Jesus is not hanging out with a group of notorious sinners, end of sentence, period. Jesus has gone to eat with a penitent sinner. See, Matthew has repented of his way of life, and he's chosen to follow Jesus. And he's going to meet Matthew's friends precisely to call them to repentance. Right? That's what you get in verse 13. So Jesus is happy to meet with them. But, but he's not meeting with them and fellowshipping in their sin. Two points. First, Notice that Jesus and Matthew's friends are sitting down for a meal. 
They are eating dinner. That is a perfectly good and healthy thing for anyone to do. Jesus was not hanging out with a group of men who were doing drugs, getting drunk, or watching sexually charged movies. Jesus was eating a meal with them. And second, please notice what Matthew and Jesus were doing. Matthew was introducing his friends to his Savior, and Jesus was calling Matthew's friends to repentance. As I say, that becomes explicit in verse 13. There Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, called to what? Matthew being Jewish, he realizes that as a Jew, everyone understands what this is. Once again, Luke expands on it just a little bit to make the point clear to a Gentile audience. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Christ's example provides no justification at all for us to live worldly lives as though we need to do that in order to reach the worldly. Christ's example shows us that we should be engaging with notorious sinners out of a desire to share the gospel with them and to call them to repentance. And Christ's example shows us how we are to treat formerly worldly people who have repented and begun to follow Jesus. We are to treat them like members of our family. Beloved, that is what Jesus actually did. But what about the Pharisees' misguided question? They ask our Lord's disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, what the Pharisees were pursuing was a religion of purity. Let it be said, that's a good thing. But they were seeking to maintain their personal purity by cutting themselves off from those who desperately needed to know that the Lord our God is a merciful and gracious God. Needless to say, that is bad. Well, is it really needless to say? You know, um, truth be told, this is where the preacher meddles a bit, um, truth be told, there's more than a bit of a Pharisee in all of us. It, it can be very easy for us to want to put a bubble around ourselves and hang out with only other Christians, and maybe only fairly mature other Christians, because it's comfortable and it's delightful. But God has sent us out into the world on his mission to reconcile the world to himself. We need, therefore, to keep giving ourselves this two-question diagnostic test. Am I for what Jesus is for, and am I against what Jesus is against? Jesus is against us running with the ungodly in their sin. Um, the first psalm puts it like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Beloved, those words are beautiful, but they only tell half the story. The other half of the story is about what Jesus is for. Jesus is for us pursuing sinners and for engaging them with the gospel. Rather than trying to build a respectable 
but ultimately ineffectual religion that we just keep between ourselves. Consider the last words of the epistle of James. This is the very end of the book. This is what James has been driving forth in many ways. James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is a vital part of the vocation that God has given to us as his people. Jesus has not only called us to keep ourselves unstained by the world, he has also sent us out into the world to be instruments whereby he reconciles the world to himself. Jesus has called us to do both. And here's a practical point of application for you. When one of these notorious sinners turns and converts, we are not to put them on probation in the church. See, the very moment Matthew chooses to follow Jesus, Jesus treats him as a member of the family of God. We have to ask ourselves this question. Are we as welcoming as Jesus is? Because we don't have any choice in the matter. We need to become that in our own lives. Let us make sure that we are as welcoming as Jesus is. Now, the Pharisees are indirectly passing judgment on Jesus. They're not just condemning these sinners. And they are in for a sharp rebuke. Verse 12. And when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, meals in the first century were not just an egalitarian affair. They could be. But but often the, the host had the place of prominence, or the guest of honor would have the place of prominence, and people would get their status by how closely they were to the most important person at the meal. Right? Jesus actually has a parable about this, about not taking the highest seat, right? Take the lowly seat, and then when the master says, No, 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 you come closer, right, then you'll be honored rather than disgraced. That's helpful for us to realize here for two reasons. First, it does seem that Jesus is treating this supper in a remarkably egalitarian way. See, he wants these sinners to repent, and therefore he invites all of them to engage him as he seeks to call them to repentance and to tell them the good news of the kingdom of God. But the second thing we have to ask ourselves is who's not there. See, the Pharisees who are criticizing Jesus, part of their criticism may arise from the fact that Jesus doesn't invite them to take the place of honor at the table with him. I mean, after all, you know, this remarkable rabbi is doing these miracles that people just are astonished by. If he's going to bring anyone to a place of honor to sharing table fellowship with him, surely it should be at least a scribe, hopefully a scribe and a Pharisee. Wouldn't it? But they aren't even invited to the meal Why are they not invited? Not just here, but elsewhere. It's very, very rare that Jesus will eat with a Pharisee. Why are they not invited? It is because Jesus is the great physician, and the Pharisees don't see themselves as sick. You need to apply that to yourself, by the way. 
right? Are you someone who needs a great physician? Or do you want to point out how badly sick other people are? Jesus says he's come as the great physician, and the Pharisees don't see themselves as sick. As Jeffrey Gibbs puts it, only those who refuse to see themselves as needing such a physician will have no place at Jesus' table. For Jesus says, I did not come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. Uh, Jesus continues his rebuke in verse 13 by citing the words from Hosea 6.6 from our Old Covenant reading this morning. Uh, In the process, he provides all of us with an enduring lesson. Uh, Let's start with the rebuke, or how he's continuing the rebuke. Please look at verse 13 with me. Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's interesting here, by the way, that the Pharisees refer to Jesus as your teacher. And Jesus is going to say, sure, I am the teacher. Let me teach you a lesson. Uh, As Professor Gibbs points out, although they might know what Scripture says, they need to go and learn what God really means by his word. In the days of Hosea, the people of Israel thought that their vertical relationship with God carried no radical implications for their relationship with one another. They were content to offer sacrifice while allowing robbery and murder in their midst. Go back and read Hosea 6. You'll see that that's in there. That that was going on. And God's saying, in the midst of this mess, of this adulterous generation, they thought they were right because they kept up with the technicalities of the sacrificial system. They were content to offer sacrifice while allowing robbery and murder in their midst. In Jesus... The Lord's covenant love is reaching out to those in need. Yet all the while, the Pharisees think evil in their hearts. They are in the same condition as apostate Israel of old. These men who prided themselves on interpreting the scripture, interpreting the scriptures rightly, need to become students again. Students of Jesus to learn about the mercy of Yahweh. Pharisee, tax collector, and sinner alike stand in equal need of that mercy. And beloved, so do you. Right? Do you see Jesus as the great physician that you so desperately need because you are so desperately sick? I'd like to close this morning with the enduring lesson that Jesus gives us By quoting just half a verse from Hosea chapter 6, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now at first blush, that might seem a little hard to grasp. I I mean, after all, God is the one who gave this very elaborate sacrificial system to Israel. And now he's saying, and quoting back from Hosea, he said this in Hosea's day, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, It turns out that this is just a rhetorical device. It's called um, dialectic negation. You do not need to know that term. 
but actually the concept is simple enough. It takes two things that are, in fact, in this case, both true, and it negates one of them so that all the emphasis falls on the other one. Right? God through Hosea, and now Jesus Christ in the first century is saying, yeah, God gave the sacrificial system, but forget about that right now. What you really need to grasp is that God is a God of mercy, and he wants you to be merciful as you proclaim the gospel of free grace. Jesus is calling the Pharisees' attention to Hosea in saying, you are so concerned with outward appearances that you are failing to be like the Lord whom you claim to represent. Uh, Don't you remember how the Lord appeared to Moses as he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock? Uh, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Beloved, that is the God whom we worship, a God of mercy and compassion. Our God is a God of astonishing mercy and steadfast love. The mission that the Lord is sending us on into the world today flows out of his own gracious and merciful character. So it's not like something God does over here. right? God is merciful and gracious. He has a plan of salvation that is merciful and gracious. He is sending us out to carry out that plan in his name and in his power. And here's the key point. Jesus is not only calling us to share the good news that he is a merciful and gracious God, Jesus is calling us to embody that message. Let us therefore regularly ask those two simple but pointed diagnostic questions. Am I for what Jesus is for? And am I against what Jesus is against? And let us keep Christ's example before us in order for us to use these questions to reevaluate the way that we live in this world. Christ's example provides no justification at all for us to live worldly lives on the basis of trying to reach the world. Christ's example does show us that we should be engaging with notorious sinners out of a desire to share the gospel with them and to call them to repentance. And Christ's example shows us how we are to treat formerly worldly people who have repented and become followers of Jesus. We are to treat them as members of our own family. That, after all, is precisely what Jesus did. Amen.